Hi, you're listening to Bonus Points, the official podcast of Mr. Astle's Theology Class. Join us as we put out Into the Deep and explore the world of theology and beyond. Today, we're talking about the quest for the Holy Grail and where I think it is today. Let's begin. Hello and welcome to episode 72 of Bonus Points. A few weeks ago, I was visiting my family for Labor Day, and there was an Indiana Jones marathon on TV. Um, Now, I've always loved these movies, and The Last Crusade was my favorite. Growing up, I, you know, at that time, there were only three of them, but um, I always enjoyed those movies. With The the Last Crusade, though, that was, I think, probably the first one I saw, certainly the one I watched the most. In case you've never seen it, um, this movie follows the adventurer-slash-archaeologist Indiana Jones, played by Harrison Ford, as he attempts to track down the Holy Grail before the Nazis do. And that part of the story, at least, the the part where the Nazis were looking for the Holy Grail, that part is based on reality. Um, Among other occult-related projects, or we could say um, weird archaeological projects, Adolf Hitler did commission a project to track down the Holy Grail. And, I mean, they didn't, but they tried. Now, we could do an entire episode on the religious themes or strange lack thereof in the Indiana Jones movies, and I might someday, but this particular one really got me thinking. After all, the movie presents the Holy Grail as the cup that Jesus used at the Last Supper. That would be a pretty important relic if it still existed. Um, we would probably put that in the same league as the crown of thorns or, you know, pieces of the cross. By the way, before we dive in, one, I just, I can't not say this. If you have seen the movie, you know that there's the scene at the end where there there are like a dozen different chalices and the seeker of the grail must correctly choose uh, which one is the real grail. And to drink from any of the other ones brings death. And the first character who tries is, you know, a Nazi. And he picks this jeweled chalice that, I mean, looks kind of like one that we'd use for mass. And of course, as the Grail Knight tells him, he chose poorly. And then Indy picks a small, simple wooden cup and says, the cup of a carpenter. And of course, that's the one. I have a few quibbles with this. First of all, yes, Jesus was a carpenter, but... There's no reason to think that he made the cup that he used at the Last Supper. So choosing a cup made of wood because Jesus was a carpenter doesn't really... It, that would be like assuming that a carpenter today only used wooden plates. In fact, it's almost certain that Jesus didn't make the, the cup because, um, if you remember, he ate the Last Supper in somebody else's house. And so he probably would have used their you know, cutlery, their bowls and plates and cups. The other quibble I have is that Indy's logic is also assuming that, oh, well, Jesus wouldn't have used one of these fancy, ostentatious jeweled cups. He would have used a very simple cup. But the Last Supper was a Passover meal. And typically, you would use the best for Passover because it was such an important occasion. Um, In fact, many homes had a cup, a very nice cup that was only used for Passover. So I don't find that compelling as well. Um, 
That's maybe for another episode, though. For now, I this movie got me thinking about the actual cup from The Last Supper, and so I started doing some research just into the history of the Grail from a Catholic perspective, because, you know, we don't hear about it as often as we hear about other instruments of the Passion. And, well, what I found became the basis for this episode, and there were a few things that kind of surprised me. So here's our roadmap. First, we're going to talk about where the term Holy Grail comes from, and some of the different meanings that it has had over time. Um, This will include a brief survey of the Grail's appearances across different literary traditions, and where some popular aspects of Grail lore first appear. Then we'll shift gears and talk about how the Grail fits into Catholic life today. We'll consider the visions of Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich, and what she saw concerning the Grail, and we'll take a look at what I think is the best contender for the Holy Grail today. Of, of all the places that claim to have it, which one do I think is the most likely? Um, finally, we'll end with what I think is the most important point, and that's what the Grail says to us today. Before we dive in, I first of all, I just want to say, if I could go back in time, eight-year-old me would think this whole episode is just so cool. Um, I mentioned that I loved watching Indiana Jones growing up, and I also loved reading about history. If you've seen the movie, you know that Indiana's father researched the Grail for years and kept his findings in a journal, and, well, it's an, it's an important plot device. I actually made my own Grail journal to catalog my findings when I was eight. And just like the one in the movie, I copied down important passages from things I read, I sketched diagrams, I was convinced that one day I was going to find it. So in a way, this episode is part of a quest that I started many years ago. Even though you may not have your own Grail journal, you can begin your own quest by checking out the plethora of resources that will be related to today's episode. As always, you'll be able to find those on bonuspointspodcast.com. And while you're at it, make sure that you share the show and subscribe or follow in your podcast app. Okay, so let's start with this term, Holy Grail. In popular usage, it has come to represent the ultimate object of a quest, you know, in the same way that Mecca has been generalized to mean any sort of ultimate destination. This generalization happened as a result of the Grail legends of the Middle Ages, which we'll talk about. Many of these stories involving... Uh, especially those involving King Arthur, had elaborate quests for the Grail. Let's go back a bit further, though. Scholars debate the actual origin of the word Grail, but the most common etymology is that it comes from the French gradal, which referred to a graded or leveled dish. At a banquet, the different grades of the dish could be used to present different courses. Whether this is the correct etymology or not, This does point to the fact that the term Holy Grail has not always referred to the chalice used by Christ at the Last Supper. In fact, in some of the oldest Grail myths, the Grail was the platter that was used for the Paschal Lamb at the Last Supper. Still, other traditions didn't associate the Holy Grail with the Last Supper at all, uh, instead picturing it as a small stone with miraculous properties. We'll talk about that one. So how do we get to the image of the Holy Grail as a chalice, and where do all of those other images come in? Um, What about some of the other properties associated with the Grail and those who possess it? 
For this, it's helpful to go back and trace the history of the grail throughout literature and mythology. As we'll see, both the grail itself and its meaning have varied considerably. The first mention of the grail is in a French poem written in the late 1100s, in which it is portrayed as a large jeweled dish with a single host on it. It is possessed by a wounded king and kept in an enchanted castle. Unfortunately, this poem was never finished, and so we don't get any more clarification about what exactly the grail is. A few years later, around the year 1200, this story was expanded. Somebody wrote a prose version of it and filled in a lot of the details. This time, he depicted the grail as a cup rather than a dish, but it still wasn't quite the chalice that we think of. It was more similar to what we would call a ciborium today. For those who don't know, a ciborium is one of the sacred vessels used during the Mass. It looks like a chalice um, in the sense that it is a cup or a bowl with a stemmed handle. The difference is the ciborium is used for holding hosts, not the wine or the precious blood. Usually ciboriums have lids, and that's what goes in the tabernacle. This story uh, also gave more details about the Grail King, um, the, the king who was in possession of the Grail, adding that at some point he had been wounded by the lance that had pierced the side of Jesus on the cross. So we, we do start to see more associations with the instruments of the Passion here. This same author wrote another story that gave kind of the, the backstory for how the Grail came into the possession of this king. In this story, the cup was used by Joseph of Arimathea to catch the blood of Jesus from the cross. If you don't remember, Joseph of Arimathea was a member of the Sanhedrin who was a secret follower of Jesus. He was the one who petitioned Pontius Pilate to allow Jesus to be buried, and he donated his tomb for the purpose. As this story tells it, he was later imprisoned for 43 years but an angel brought the grail to him, and it sustained him miraculously for the entire time. The story says that the grail then passed into the hands of Joseph of Arimathea's son, who eventually took it to England. His relatives became the hereditary keepers of the grail, um, and at least as of that story, had been ever since. Both of these stories were then incorporated into a collection of stories known as the Vulgate Cycle, which was a collection of French prose that told stories about King Arthur. Many of these stories were written by Cistercian monks, which really enhanced the spiritual dimension of the Grail legend. For example, the quest for the Grail took on this character of a spiritual quest, and um, only the pure of heart would be able to complete it. The Vulgate Cycle doesn't explicitly call the Grail a chalice, but it does use the word for bowl, um, which in my opinion leaves a little bit of ambiguity. The Vulgate Cycle was a major source for a French book called The Death of Arthur, which is, we could call it the official telling of the, of the Arthur legends. Um, both this and the Vulgate Cycle were incredibly popular, and they inspired this entire genre of Arthur stories. And so as these stories became more well-known, so did the Grail. A few years later, in 1210, there was a German poet who wrote a poem called Parzival. And in this version, uh, in this version of the story, the Grail is a small white stone, 
that was originally brought to earth by the neutral angels at the time of Lucifer's rebellion. So he said that at the fall of the angels, there were those who sided with God, led by the archangel Michael. There were those who rebelled, led by Lucifer. But then there were also some neutral angels, and it was, it was those ones who brought this stone to earth. This stone does things like um, it generates whatever food the people in the castle wanted, and it could heal the sick, it could, uh, it would, whoever possessed it would stay young forever. You know, these were certainly innovations to the story, but they didn't really stick. Um, the image of the grail as a cup or chalice returned to being the most common image for the grail after this poem, uh, and it's, it's been that way ever since. In the resources, I'll have links to all of these stories, as well as more modern appearances of the grail in literature and pop culture. So, the term Holy Grail has actually been used in a variety of ways throughout history, but today we usually picture it as the chalice of the Last Supper. So, what can we say about that? For this, I'd like to turn to the visions of Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich was a German mystic. Um, she was alive. She was born in the late 1700s and died, um, I think, in the 1820s. And she was known for experiencing a series of visions that were then compiled into a couple books, most notably a collection called The Life of Jesus Christ and Biblical Revelations, and a book called The Dolorous Passion of Our Lord Jesus Christ, which really focused on the events of the Passion. She has kind of become more well-known recently because when Mel Gibson was creating The Passion of the Christ back in 2004, um, he used her visions for a lot of the details. You know, obviously he based it on scripture, but he filled in a lot of other details using details from her visions. Now, at some point, she does mention the cup from the Last Supper, where it came from, and what happened to it. She never calls it the grail, but she does talk about the chalice itself. So, according to her visions, and, and before I say this, as a reminder, private revelation is never required for belief. It is acceptable once it's been approved, and, and these visions have, but we're not required to believe that these visions actually reflect history. They might, as we said in our episode on private revelation a few episodes back, visions are always for theological purposes, for spiritual purposes, not to satisfy our historical curiosity. So, in any case, what she saw was the that the chalice was originally given to Noah back in the book of Genesis while he was building the ark. There were three angels that gave him this chalice. In it was a grain of wheat and a vine branch um, that he was supposed to plant after the flood. And she saw visions of Noah using that chalice during his worship. You know, in those days, we didn't yet have the temple or the tabernacle, but we had what was called the natural priesthood or the patriarchal priesthood, where every father was a priest who would offer sacrifices. And so we hear several times about Noah offering sacrifices, According to her visions, this chalice also featured in those ceremonies. After this, it was given to his eldest son, Shem, who um, ends up receiving the covenant from him. 
and it goes from uh, carried by Shem into Mesopotamia. As the story goes, later in Genesis, when Melchizedek meets Abraham, he gives the chalice to him. Now you might say, you know, Melchizedek is this mysterious priest king. How does it get from Shem to him? Well, let's just say I'm convinced, um, along with, with many others, that Shem is Melchizedek, that Melchizedek is just a title that Shem adopts. And so that would explain, you know, Shem receives it from Noah. He takes on the name Melchizedek and then hands it on to Abraham. At this point, um, she sees the chalice being used by the different patriarchs in these worship rituals, these sacrifices that she could tell were very clearly prefigurings of the mass. Obviously, they didn't know that, but um, they were able to convey a special blessing via, she doesn't really go into detail, just she calls it this holy thing, <laughs> and they were able to pass, pass it on to their heirs. Um, she says that later on, Moses placed the chalice and the mysterious holy thing that was in it into the Ark of the Covenant, but that it was removed right before Jeremiah hid the Ark, right before Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem. She said that the chalice passed into the hand of the Essenes, which were a a quasi-monastic Jewish sect, and that they held on to it until the second temple was built, when the temple was rebuilt, and that an angel took it to Joachim just before Mary was conceived. So it makes its way into the second temple, but um, the temple had too many vessels. They, they had more vessels than they needed, and so the chalice was sold to an antiquarian bought by St. Veronica, and from there given to Jesus for his use during different um, religious festivals, and it was that cup that was used at the Last Supper. Now again, we are not under any obligation to believe that these visions are even true, but even historically accurate. Um, some parts of it, I mean, I I can't judge it, right? I'm not a mystic. I can't say that that isn't likely or that it didn't happen. It seems to require a large series of coincidences to have happened, but, you know, that's how providence works sometimes, so I don't want to be too skeptical. More importantly, this story highlights the prefigurings, that there's a connection between the patriarchal priesthood, the, the, the priesthood of, of Adam and Noah and Abraham. There's a connection between that and the mass. That's why Jesus is described, um, and the Psalms say, like, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. So whether we take these stories as being accurate depictions of history, it is still, um, I think it's still important. I think it still tells us something. Now, one last note from Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich. She said that um, Jesus was the only one who knew kind of where the grail had come from and, and what it was, and that after the Last Supper, it was kept by the church, but has fallen into hiding. And she ends, the last thing she says about the chalice is this rather mysterious sentence. Um, she says that it will come to light as it did once before. It's like, well, maybe maybe now is the time. And that's a good segue to talk about what I think is the most likely contender for the grail today. Now, 
as with any lost artifact, especially well-known ones, there are going to be all sorts of people who claim to have it. And many of them, if you say, well, can I see it? They'll say, no, it's secret. Um, And, you know, obviously those are a little bit harder to believe. But there are a few that are more likely. There are a few that you can go see and that have, have stood the test of time. Here's the one that I think is the most likely. I'm not saying that this is definitely the Holy Grail. But of all the candidates out there, if you told me, like, which one is the one, this is the one that I would pick. It is a chalice that is in the collection of Valencia Cathedral in Spain. Um, usually it's kept in a ra- ra- rather small chapel at the back of the cathedral. But twice a year, it is brought out and placed um, on more prominent display for veneration. This is a, it's a small stone reddish cup, and it has an elaborate chalice around it, like it's, it has handles and a stem, but we know those were added um, in the medieval time. What we're thinking of is just the cup part. It is, in my opinion, the most likely candidate for a few reasons. First of all, an analysis of the grail itself revealed that it is made of a stone that is only found in the Holy Land, and that it dates from the era of King Herod the Great, which would be, um, it's, that is the Herod who was the, the Herod who was around when Jesus was born, the father of the Herod who meets Jesus during his trials. The measurement of the chalice, including the shape of it, would fit with an ancient Jewish chalice and the story of how it got to valencia adds a little bit more evidence obviously uh, none of this is conclusive right you can have something made from stone from the holy land that doesn't mean it was the chalice of the last supper but that is pretty good evidence and it was taken to valencia according to the story it it came to spain via saint lawrence but it was investigated by saint juan de ribiera who was the Archbishop of Valencia um, in the mid-1500s. Now, the reason I think this is good evidence is he was very fond of relics. He loved relics, but he took the authenticity of relics very seriously. As we talked about in an old episode about relics, there were times when um, people sold counterfeits. They sold fake relics. And so that was a big deal at the time. It still is, but was also a big deal then. And so this archbishop would conduct these painstaking, this painstaking research of relics to guarantee their authenticity. And if, if they weren't real, he would burn them at the stake, literally. And so um, when it came to the chalice, not only did he not destroy it, but he encouraged people to venerate it as much as possible. So he felt very strongly about its authenticity. And so... Again, not conclusive, but based on all of those factors, the the strong tradition of how it got to Valencia, the investigation carried out by Archbishop Ribiera, sorry, Saint Ribiera, um, and the fact that the scientific research into it has confirmed at least that it is a 
chalice from the Holy Land from the first century. All of that together makes it a very likely candidate in my mind. But to close here, what's the most important thing? You know, at the end of the day, the chalice of the Last Supper um, is, is an important relic, but no relic is as important as the Eucharist that the chalice would have contained um, and has contained. You know, this chalice in Valencia has been used, it was used by Pope John Paul II, it was used by Pope Benedict for Mass. So whether it was the literal chalice from the Last Supper or not, it has held the blood of Christ. And so in that, in my mind, that's the most important thing. What do all the grail legends have in common? They all talk about the power of the grail to sustain life, to even give miraculous life, to heal infirmities. That, in some sense, that's reflective of the Eucharistic piety of, of the medieval era. But even today, Right. I mean, I don't think it's a coincidence. So you have the Grail legends becoming very popular in the early 1200s. Um, not long after, you have the creation of the Feast of Corpus Christi, this great solemnity dedicated to the Eucharist. You have Thomas Aquinas being commissioned to write sort of the texts for that day. And he gives us some of the greatest Eucharistic poetry in church history. I think there's a connection here. The cup from the Last Supper it would be a cool relic, is a cool relic. But the most important thing is it should always direct our attention back to our Lord present in the Eucharist. You know, every time we go to Mass, we are in the presence of the Holy Grail. Whether it is the cup from the Last Supper or not, I know that the one we use here at St. Joe's for Mass is not. But it has still contained the blood of Christ. And if you think about, you know, why do people care about the Holy Grail? Why is it an important relic? Well, because it it was the cup used at the Last Supper, and it, according to some of the legends, caught the blood of Christ at the cross. Well, then, in that sense, we can look at the chalice that's on the altar at your parish church right now and say, all right, there it is. Because every Mass is a representation of the Last Supper. Every Mass is a representation of the cross. And at every Mass, we are in the presence of, of our Lord and his precious blood. And so I guess that's kind of my last encouragement here is we can be easily captivated by relics and by the stories of the grail, but they should always remind us that there's something greater. They should always point us um, to not only a relic of our Lord, but our Lord himself present with us in the Eucharist. And that's really all I have for today. We could have gone so much deeper on so many points Here's what I'm going to do instead. On the website, bonuspointspodcast.com, you're going to find a whole bunch of resources. You'll find the different medieval poems and stories that I mentioned. You'll find some more recent, like the, um, a more recent opera by Wagner. You'll find um, even much more modern poetry, like The Wasteland by T.S. Eliot. And of course, you'll see the classic movies like The Last Crusade and Monty Python and the Holy Grail. So plenty to check out this time around, um, as well as some additional research that I did on the, the chalice in Valencia and the history of um, Blessed Anne Catherine Emmerich and, and her visions as well. As always, you can find all of that on bonuspointspodcast.com. 
Until next time, I'm Mr. Astle. Thank you for joining us once again as we put out into the deep to explore the world of theology and beyond.